The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. Thanks, everybody, for joining. This is the second live impromptu market chat conversation. All right, so let's talk about energy. So I, it's funny how narrative follows price, as I always say, right? Last year was incredible for the energy sector. A lot of Twitter spaces were dedicated to the idea that energy was going to be the place to be from a multi-year perspective. By the way, I still think it is. But let's face it, old momentum and FOMO has gone to tech the way this year. Yeah. And energy hasn't really kind of played out too well so far. Just talk about sort of from your vantage point, what do you think is going on with investor demand when it comes to the energy space, the oil and gas space? I'm going to try and show a couple of charts that we're chatting, but lay out the landscape in terms of how you're saying things. Well, it's been tough on the private side. There's been a lot less investment, private equity. These guys have struggled to raise funds. I think we talked about that last time I came on your podcast. There have been some pretty incredible exits finally coming through on the private equity space, a lot of consolidation, which we can talk about. On the public side, it's been out of favor. I still think valuations are. I mean, I'm not an equities analyst, I'm more in the private side of things, but I still think there's some attractive valuations. But, you know, this year we've seen oil prices, we- oil prices weaken. We've seen natural gas prices fall off a cliff. They've bounced back a little bit. And I just think that, you know, underlying a lot of this is kind of the don't fight the Fed narrative. People will point back to oil fundamentals and say, look, you know, OPEC's cutting, rig counts finally dropping, production in the US is getting flatter, maybe declining on the oil side. But ultimately, with the, you know, the yield curve where it's at and what people are predicting around a potential recession, I think it's just hard to get super bullish in the near term on oil prices with the, you know, with a bunch of indicators saying that there could potentially be a recession looming. Oil typically dips during those. And then, you know, after those, it tends to rip a little bit. If you look at the last few that we've had, obviously the 08, and then even in COVID, we saw oil prices go negative, then they bounced back dramatically afterwards. So I think until we can see some line of sight on whether this is like a soft landing type of situation or whether, you know, we're going to avert it totally or whether it's going to be a huge recession or, you know, until we can figure out what's going to happen in terms of global demand and what could play out, I think it's going to be hard for oil to break free. I could be wrong. I would love to be wrong there because it helps my business and the companies that we work for if oil goes higher. But you know, we're seeing a lot of consolidation. We're seeing people dropping activity. We're seeing OPEC cutting. There's a lot going on that we can dive into. All right, so let's get into the OPEC cutting. But before we do, on the natural gas, so, I mean, when I, it's funny, I was looking at the chart, it actually looks like it could be bottoming maybe after a horrendous period. And I get it, a lot of that's yeah. weather related, right? But is there anything else other than weather recession that's driving, particularly when it comes to natural gas, that 
sell off and that could be some stabilization here that could maybe cause a catalyst hire. Anything that you're seeing there? Yeah, I mean, I think the guys still got after it. You know, there was this narrative that capital discipline and guys aren't going to drill, but we saw Haynesville going crazy, people adding rigs. We saw production setting new highs. I think recently, I haven't looked at the supply numbers in a few weeks, but we had dipped below 100 BCF and I don't know where it's at today, but we saw some supply coming off. I think the Northeast is under pressure. I mean, when you get to $2 for natural gas, you get below that. There's not a lot of reserves that make sense to drill. I mean, guys drill them for other reasons, like they make an acquisition, they have to drill it and bring cash forward. They've got debt that they have to service, although balance sheets have gotten a lot better over the last year in this space. But I think that it was really, you know, weather and then a supply story in terms of a weak winter. And then guys just getting after it when people kind of convince themselves, like they always do, that guys won't, you know, drill their way into oblivion. And we just saw a lot of production come on. I, I don't think that the equilibrium price for natural gas is two dollars. I mean, I would hope that it's closer to three fifty, four dollars, but we'll see. I mean, the Northeast is constrained. We, you know, if Mountain Valley Pipeline, I think Joe Manchin finally got that thing pushed through just recently with the debt ceiling bill. We'll see if it happens, but they got to get unconstrained. We need new infrastructure projects to get more supply on. There's been rumblings around the LNG side that if prices drop low enough in Europe and some of these other Asian markets that there could be bottlenecks there. It's like if you know, there's definitely a spread that has to be made for LNG to make sense. So look, I don't know what's going to happen. My gut tells me that this is fake. We've lived through it before. 2019 was an especially painful year when prices got really low. And I would just hope that we could stay range bound in the future in kind of the three to four dollar range. I think that's a healthy range. I think you get above four dollars, you get that five dollars plus range, and guys start getting belligerent again around the drill bit. And so we'll see. I, you know, it's bounced back a little bit. I think it's like 260 this morning on the next month. So I don't know. Natural gas is an interesting one. They call it the widow maker for a reason. It's hard to predict. All right, let's talk about the OPEC. I'm going to share the screen on OPEC oil production here. Because again, that's they. You know, it, it is amazing. It's everyone, uh, you know, and you've seen this before because you've seen cycles. But everyone got so hyped up about energy and oil, you know, especially towards the peak in June. Right now, people are kind of sanguine on it. I mean, that's always what happens. The narrative follows price. But let's talk about OPEC. I've got a chart here on OPEC crude oil production from Y charts. Yeah, still looking like it's on the uptrend. But you know, now you've got some dynamics where the UK is going to have to probably force a recession to break inflation. Most of the eurozone is in recession. You've got some really interesting, conflicting demand dynamics, I think, when it comes to Europe in general. But what do you see with OPEC? I think they're trying to front run a weaker demand scenario is what I would, you know, there's a lot of people saying, oh, they don't have the capacity. They're not going to, you know, they can't, they've been underproducing on their quotas. I think it's more like they're trying to get ahead of the market and they are seeing what, you know, they're smart. They understand the dynamics of what's going on. You know, maybe they're seeing weaker demand. Maybe they're forecasting this recession and they want to get ahead of it. These guys need to be at a $80 plus rent price for, you know, a lot of these budgets to work. You know, Saudi Arabia has a lot of ambitious plans. They're investing a lot of money in everything from building new cities to taking over the golf world. So, you know, with all their programs, their social programs, their economic ambitions, they really need a Brent crude price at above $80 to make it work. And so we'll see. I think that these guys know what they're doing. And, I, you know, I think they're trying to front run potential weakness in demand, maybe coming up later this year, next year. But presumably they don't, you know, they can try to front run it, but there's so much volatility and risk, you know, both ways, I'd argue. I mean, you got seemingly, seemingly more still upside risk when it comes to inflation in, in, you know, areas like the UK. 
you've got downside risk in a lot of other areas. So I have to imagine it's hard for their own models to even try to get a sense one way or the other what exactly to do. Yeah, I would I would think so. But, you know, to me, it's like these guys, they're not as afraid of the U.S. as they used to be in terms of shale producers growing at the same clip that they were. I think that they feel like they're in the driver's seat. And, you know, the game theory has always said, you know, look, the prisoner's dilemma early on in the shale revolution they were trying to break the U.S. companies. I think they largely succeeded in a lot of ways. Guys continued to grow production. And then, you know, the last couple of years, the capital discipline narrative and the ESG narrative and a bunch of other things have kind of played out a little bit where guys seem to be more sober in terms of what they're doing on their drill schedule plans. And so now I just don't think that they're as afraid that if prices go to $100 or $110 that people are just going to go wild here in the U.S. They could be wrong. I mean, you know, drill, baby, drill. These guys love to drill wells and that's at their nature. These capitalists here in the U.S. that that's like what they like to do. But I just feel like OPEC feels like they have more control in the market. They have a fine, it's all finite supply. Yes, Saudi Arabia and these countries have a ton of oil reserves, but ultimately those are precious. And would you rather pump oil at $50 or at $100? And I think that the answer is they'd rather pump it at $100. So I think they're going to do whatever they can to prop the price up to a certain level. You know, last year, the U.S. government with the SPR releases was a big factor. I mean, they were pushing a lot of barrels onto the market. At some point, you know, they're going to have to refill that. Who knows when, but they've done a little bit of purchases. But I think OPEC just sees that they can control it or they think that they can and they want to nudge prices higher. Let's talk about that because I put up the chart again from Y charts, as I'm sharing my screen here. I haven't really been tracking what's going on with the reserve until just now, which I pulled it up. But I thought we were supposed to be refilling that at lower prices. Is that, yeah. is that not happening? It's going to be tough. I mean, we're going into an election cycle right now in the U.S. And so it's a really interesting time because the election cycle, I think, is going to have an impact on what they do with the SPR. Do they really want to be buying a ton of barrels and pushing prices up going into that? I would say that, that they don't. I would be shocked if they do it in a meaningful way prior to the election results. It's also interesting with what the Fed's doing with interest rates and where the economy is broadly. You know, they really don't, <laughs> the powers that be probably do not want a, you know, major recession heading into this election cycle. And so I, I just have a hard time believing they're going to buy a, bu- a bunch of barrels that could put upward pressure on prices, given where we're at politically right now. Could be wrong, but I would say that history shows that they're going to do whatever they can to prop up the, co- the economy here coming in the next 12 months. Right. Actually, I've made that point before. You know, People vote based on nominal, not based on real. So there is an incentive for the existing incumbent to keep the economy on a nominal basis looking strong, even if on an after inflation basis, it's not, at least until they pass the election. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's I think that's where it's going to go. And I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with inflation. I'm not you know, I like to follow the macro stuff. I nerd out on it. It seems like we've rolled over. I think a lot of the housing data is going to start coming through later this year. And you're seeing downward pressure on home prices. Uh, Maybe not as much as people thought, but you are. You're seeing some downward pressure on rents. And these things are on a big lag. So when that does catch up, I mean, if you look broadly at what's going on, I mean, look at commodities. Look at, you know, I mean, some things like the labor market, maybe still pretty strong. It's showing some cracks, but ultimately the basket of goods, I mean, prices have either come down or they've stopped inflating nearly as much. I mean, lumber, you talk about it a lot. We're seeing it. We're hearing it from builders in the home building space. They think 
They think materials costs are coming down on some things, not everything. Uh, they think labor costs could be coming down on the home building side, you know. And so I just think that if inflation has rolled over, they're going to play that card. They're going to hope to keep it low. The last thing they want to see is, you know, $120, $130 oil rolling into an election. So getting back to the SBR, I think that's a major thing is that if they can keep, you know, the economy at least partially on the rails here, I think they're going to do what they can to do it. So your point about housing, I think, is is worth noting. And I'll be the first one to say, as much as I keep on being very loud saying housing is fucked, which I do believe from a very long-term perspective. <laughs> to your point, it's been it's been actually pretty remarkable. So if you look at the case Tiller, yeah, index is kind of a proxy in home values. I mean, you looked like you had peaked. Now you've got this little pickup here, right? Which I think yeah. Powell has kind of alluded to, right? It's like well, housing may be reaccelerating. Now, to some extent, you can argue that that makes a little bit of sense, right? Because if I always go back to this idea that you need the illusion of stability for activity, the illusion of it. So if people believe that you're toward the end of the rate hike cycle, then there's a belief that mortgage rates have maybe debatable, right? But that becomes so I think it makes sense that you would see some some new activity on the hope that now the next move is directionally lower rates. So you start seeing some movement there. But to your point, this is still a very kind of strange dynamic. I know you're involved with real estate and you tweet a decent amount on that. Talk about just real estate from your perspective now. Forget about the case shiller. What's your own sense of you know housing, properties, and how that relates to inflation? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. Yeah, I'd love to. So we, you know, initially when I started investing in real estate, it was more on the residential side, single family homes. I'm not, we're not in that asset category today. So I'm not following it as closely. I do know that there was a lot of price pressure last year when rates went up. The days on the market started going up. The home values started coming down. You stopped seeing these bidding wars, things like that. But ultimately, you know, people have to find a place to live and people don't want to move when interest rates are high, but some people are forced to move and everything's supply and demand. And so as we see pressure on home builders, you know, as we see like days on the market tick up, as we see pre-sales go down, like for new developments for residential housing, that's going to cause a slowdown. And, you know, inventory is going to drive a lot of things. And there's still a lot of markets that, that are probably undersupplied from an inventory standpoint. So, you know, I think, Right now, the real estate market feels like it's going through a new normalization and equilibrium around what is an acceptable mortgage rate. There for years, it was like, if you could get a rate in the 3%, that was a home run. And it was, given what's happened now with inflation. I think in the future, you know, getting a rate around 5%, people are going to view that as more of a home run. And so what you start to see is when interest rates drop below that 7%, we kind of get into the low sixes. It seems like the market tends to stabilize around you know, new applications for new mortgage applications, you know, new buyers into the market. And so it's going to take some time. But I talked to a friend that's about 10 years older than me. And he's like, look, man, when I got out of college, he's like, it wasn't, it was pretty normal to see like a 6% mortgage rate. He's like, people weren't shocked by that. But people have been conditioned over the last 10 plus years, however long it's been to get these really low rates. And it's just going to take some time for the new normal to set in. But 
it's one of those things that is an easy lever theoretically for them to pull the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities. I mean, they can get interest, I think, mortgage rates down if they wanted to in different ways. And I think that if you're at kind of this like low 6%, call it mid 5% mortgage rate, you're going to see a healthier uh, home environment. And really, that's kind of where they need to be. I think it's just, it's unhealthy to have mortgage rates in the 3% range. You just see prices going nuts. And so that's kind of where that's going. In my opinion, I think that, you know, the story is the spread between the 10-year and mortgage rates, you know, typically it's been kind of around 2% or less. It's blown out. I don't know what it is today. I haven't looked at it in a while, but but follow the 10-year treasury and you're going to see what happens with mortgage rates. And then in terms of the segment that we're in now, we're in short-term rentals and vacation rentals, which is really like a hospitality play. And there's a lot of doom and gloom on Twitter about that space. And I think that the space has seen a lot more entrants come in terms of amateur investors getting in. I think it's getting more competitive. But I do still think it's healthy. I think that what you're seeing now in that space is you really have to be a sophisticated operator and you have to have properties that are purpose-built for these types of vacation rentals. And those are doing well. I think Joe Schmo that just bought a house in a market that you know had done well two, three years ago because there was no inventory. I think you're going to see some pressure there. But happy to get more into that space if you want. But that's kind of where we're at today on the real estate. Yeah, no, and actually I see Charles from YouTube saying that Zillow has lots of overpriced homes for sale. And that's not just something that people say, right? I mean, if you look at home affordability, income to, to interest payment type of metrics, right? It's very clear that we're still in the top decile of expense. But yeah, the thing is, this stuff, as, as you know, Max, it takes a while to resolve, right? Which is why I think it's going to be tricky to try to play both ways, right? You can believe that housing is overvalued, but can be even more of overvalued, just like stocks, right? So I mean, it's overbought, can be overbought for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've seen it. Like I've tweeted a couple of times about you know, where home prices are today on new homes. I mean, look at my house and I bought it in 2019, which actually turned out to be a pretty fortuitous move by us. And I thought at the time that we paid kind of top or close to top of market, I was worried about it, but it was a nice home. We really liked it. And it was a big decision for us. First time we moved in seven years. And then now looking at what new homes that are right in my same area that I live in, right across the street in a new development, the price per square foot is nearly double um, what we paid, it would to get the same size house, I would have to be paying almost twice or more than twice uh, what we paid, which is just crazy. And then you couple that with, you know, in, with mortgage rates. And so I actually had a, a broker come to me recently. He's like, hey, I've got this couple. They're looking for a house in your neighborhood. They really liked your house when it was on the market a few years ago. Would you guys ever be open at selling? Could they throw out a number? And I was just like, not really. I was like, they can throw out a number, but what am I going to do? I'm going to go turn around and have to buy the same house for almost twice the price at an interest rate that's over double what I have locked in for 30 years. So it's expensive. I mean, home prices are expensive. When you look at affordability, you look at everything else. It's inflation matters. So it's not just the price of your mortgage. It's the price of your groceries and all these other things. And so it's like, I'll go back and look at my credit card bill from two years ago and look at the summary and be like, I don't feel like we're really buying more stuff. Why is this up 30% You know, monthly? And my and I talked to my wife about it. We're talking about budgets, and she's like, "It's just inflation." She's like, "We're buying the same amount of stuff. It's just like you know, it's flowing through." And so, when you think about affordability, it's not just the affordability of the house; it's the affordability of the American budget and of the household budget. And right now, they're being stretched, in my opinion. And so, that factors in as well on what people can afford when they go to buy a home. Yeah, I'm trying to pull it up because I do think this is something that's also underappreciated. Speaking about being stretched, which is you look at credit cards and credit card interest rates, right? you're pretty much at all-time highs. Now, the thing is, you know, just like it takes, what's the expression, 21 days to change a habit, right? 
It takes time for people to change their spending habits much longer, right? So the Fed is battling inflation with higher rates filtered through everything in the economy as revolving interest rates keep on going higher and higher. Most people don't notice it right away, but they start noticing it when over time the minimum payments keep on increasing, right? Relative to their so and that's where I think that's why I, I you know, going back to your point about, you know, consumer spending and how that relates to even the luxury rental side of things, I have to assume that no matter how wealthy you are, at some point credit card interest rates start making you rethink some of your investment decisions and spending habits. I, I think it does to a certain level. Like what I've always said, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, is that in these types of markets, and this is hearing like a lot of people talk about 2008, what happened, that was obviously a unique circumstance in the real estate space. But I would rather be playing at the very top end or the very bottom end when it comes to real estate and making these investments. Because the people at the top, and we're seeing it right now with the luxury homes that we do. We just brought a couple really cool, brought a couple cool cabins, right? I call them cabins. They're really just like mansions online in this vacation rental market that we have. And we've had like, you know, four or five people per one of them call us up. They're cash buyers that really like them. And we're like, hey, would you be willing to sell this? And it's like, well, clearly, there are people that have lots of money. I don't think this stuff matters as much. Like, I've got some friends that are really wealthy. And it's like, talk to them about it. And like, they're going out to buy their wife the brand new Escalade. Like, they don't care. If you're worth, you know, $30, $40 million, like, you're going to buy the thing that you want. And so I think it's the people kind of in the middle that were reaching to buy that new house that really wanted to get, they wanted to go from 2,000 square feet to 3,500 square feet. And they could have done it at 3% mortgage rates. Now they're looking at it and they're like, this is too far away. I think there's always going to be the need for affordable things. So stuff on the very bottom end, if you have a price advantage and you have a quality advantage, you can come in and offer something that's good quality at a really low price. I think that works good in this environment. I think it's the stuff in the middle. It's the stuff that people had to stretch for. It's the stuff that people probably shouldn't have been buying that house because, you know, look, if the difference in 2 or 3% of a mortgage rate changes like, the fact that you could even afford this house maybe should have been like not affording it in the first place. I know that's kind of harsh to say, but like if you're at the very top end of the market and I've talked to people that are like real estate developers from 2008 and they were like, yeah, we were building, you know, a million dollar gardens in this house in Florida and spending all this money. And like that business didn't really slow down that much because it was these people that just had tons of money and they were like, yeah, go put in a $500,000, you know, backyard pool and all the $500,000 of landscaping and all this stuff. And so Anyways, that's kind of my thought is that I think you would, in this environment, you'd rather be at the very tippy top end or you'd rather be at the very bottom. I think the stuff in the middle is where you're going to see a lot of pressure. I could be wrong. That's kind of my layman's take, but. Um. Yeah, the truth is that's an unfortunate dynamic that's always in play, right? I mean, you're basically at the core, it's a reflection of the widening wealth gap. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that from the vacation rental space specifically, what we've tried to do is make it even relatively affordable. If you look at like the cabins that we have or the homes that we have on a per bedroom or on a sleep count basis, you know, it's like three, 400 bucks a night for this incredible luxury place per couple that's staying there. So, I mean, I go and stay for business in Houston or in Dallas, I'm gonna get like a shitbox hotel for 350 a night, like in, you know, downtown Houston. And I'm like, this is awful. Like the water stinks. It's a gross, like Marriott courtyard, whatever. I mean, I'm picking on them, pick another one. But they charge like three seventy a night, and then they tack on taxes and fees, and it's like, or you could pay three seventy a night and stay in this luxurious place with your friends and family, and and get a pool and all these other amenities. And so it's like you have to be conscious of not what we're charging on the rentals, but what we're charging on a per couple basis, on a per you know paying customer basis, and keep that in line to where people can still have an affordable vacation where they can drive. And that's another theory that we've had is that 
the market we're in is about, a, if it's probably a four to five hour drive from like a radius of about 18 million people. So about the size of the state of New York, a little less. And so it's like, can we provide an experience for people during times when they don't have the budget? I mean, I've got three kids. Like we're going to go on a couple of vacations this year just to fly them somewhere for five people. It's ridiculous. I mean, just the cost of admission just to get there is ridiculous. So having something that people can drive to that they can split with a couple other families and it still makes a pretty affordable vacation that's a, a great time. That's kind of where we're thinking in terms of how to position. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good place to end this kind of impromptu market chat. Everybody, please make sure you follow. If you don't already, Max, uh, exactly already here on Twitter, on YouTube and anybody else that's here. Show positivity the way Max does because life is short and you don't want to be an asshole to those that you never know who can help you and who you can help and vice versa. So thank you, Max. Appreciate those that tuned in randomly. Make sure you, by the way, everybody that's listening, click that notification button on my profile, on Max's profile for live videos because we might surprise people. Try to do this whole surprise and delight thing. There we go. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I appreciate it. It's always Good fun. Good stuff, Max. Thanks, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.